Hello, welcome back to Undressing the Issue. I'm Julia, I'm your host, and uh, decided to pick kind of a broad topic today, but it's one that I mention all the time. It's one that I talk about all the time. We hear about it all the time. What the hell is it? Well, let's talk about it. So the topic I picked for this episode is trauma. (sighs) I think I've probably said it at least a hundred (laughs) times in my episodes so far. I feel like I talk about it dozens of times each day. It's kind of a big word and everybody has a different understanding of what trauma is. What the fuck am I talking about when I say trauma? That's traumatic. You've been traumatized. That sounds like trauma. Well, what is that? So, kind of want to dive into it and try not to make this painfully boring, but informative more so. So, let me first start off by saying that When, as a therapist, I refer to trauma, what I'm really talking about is post-traumatic stress disorder. So that is the diagnosis, the formal diagnosis, the name of what we're referring to. And I'm going to explain to you exactly what that is comprised of. And I'm also going to talk to you about the different things that I take into consideration when I'm determining whether uh, someone I'm speaking to has suffered from some type of trauma or is, uh, well, displaying trauma responses. So first off, when a lot of people think of the word trauma, what they think about is some type of dramatic uh, event that they that's left an imprint that they can't forget that's stuck with them that replays in their mind. A lot of times when people think of trauma, they think of, uh, for example, veterans, people who have seen combat, who've seen their friends being killed, who've seen carnage and death and that's something that people associate with trauma or having been through a horrible car accident and being injured or somebody losing their life or being in some type of dangerous situation where they're stabbed or they're raped or they're shot or really seriously harmed in some way. So those types of things those types of really dramatic um, big events that really stick with us that we can't unsee, that is something that we often refer to as big T trauma. Those are those biggies, the ones that can really mess people up uh, to where they have horrible flashbacks, to where they have nightmares, where, you know, they... For a lot of people, it seems very, very understandable why something like that happening could really mess someone up. Now, 
What's lesser known to most people is what we call small t traumas. So small t traumas are not necessarily as impactful or long lasting. They're not necessarily specific one time events that are just so life altering that they stick with us, but they can be smaller events that also impact us, but maybe aren't as memorable. And when there are enough of them, that can amount to similar symptoms and presentation to what you see with one big T trauma. So the other thing to also understand is that there's this conception that trauma comes from something bad happening to you. And I guess in the terms that I'm defining it, Uh, In terms of big T or small T, there's really, really bad stuff happening to you or there's not so bad, less bad stuff happening to you. And I want to be clear, yes, that is one way that somebody can be traumatized, but there's also potential for trauma when there's a lack of good things And this is something that most folks uh, don't understand or that's never been explained to them. It's no fault of their own. But if somebody's never been physically abused or sexually abused, has never, you know, had anything really dangerous happen to them, but at the same time, they were never really loved or nurtured or supported, or complimented, or uh, basically kept safe in any way, where their feelings were never important, where they never had a voice, really, nobody was there to hear them, that's also traumatic. And that can amount to small t trauma. And when it goes on long enough, For example, maybe throughout somebody's entire childhood, that's still going to affect them deeply. And it could easily affect them and cause resulting post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms that can look similar to somebody else who did have a very loving, awesome childhood upbringing, lots of great life experiences, but then had a big T trauma where they, I'm thinking of examples here, I don't know, where they uh, had their house burned down in a wildfire, I'm inspired by current events, and um, lost all of their belongings and maybe were injured in that fire and maybe lost a pet, and that would be a big T trauma even though they're lacking those small T traumas and they did have the presence of good things. So it's very relative, but I do want to make this distinction that trauma and what is traumatic can vary from person to person. And it doesn't have to be what we see in the movies, for example, with you know veterans with severe PTSD. It can be somebody who 
was lacking something that they needed for their development or growth or for their um, establishment of their identity, their sense of self. And that can also result in some trauma symptoms. So it's not just the big things, I want to be clear. And the other piece of it is, just because somebody has a big T trauma doesn't mean that they are absolutely, definitely going to have trauma symptoms, okay? So first off, you have to take into consideration that there are individual differences. So every single person is completely different. We're all kind of like fingerprints, snowflakes. We're all unique. And they've done twin studies on this. There's been a ton of research of identical twins, same DNA, same environment that they're brought up in, who both experience the same big T traumatic event at the same time. And what they find is that each one of those twins has an equal chance of walking away from that event completely differently, where one of them can not be really affected by it. They may be affected temporarily, but then they adjust and it doesn't really have any lasting effects. And the other one can be impaired by the trauma symptoms from this event for the rest of their lives. And the only thing that's really different about those two people is just their individuality, their personalities, their perception. So I want to be clear, there's no severity rating, really, from person to person. It's not a comparison that's not really uh, an appropriate comparison. Just because somebody had no big T traumas some small T traumas, has some pretty significant symptoms, and the next person has a lot of really big T trauma in their lives and doesn't have a whole lot of symptoms, that doesn't mean that the first person is overreacting, and it doesn't mean that the second person is underreacting. Everybody perceives things differently, and they make sense of things differently. So... I want to be clear on that, that I hear this all the time, which is why I bring it up. I have a lot of people who say, oh, I know that there have been, there's so many other people who have it way worse than me, who've been through so much worse than me, and I shouldn't be sitting here feeling bad for myself, and I feel like I have no right to be complaining that these things are still bothering me because they're really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But the reality is there is no grand scheme of things. It's your perception, it's your experience, and that is valid. And the next person may have a very different experience and very different perception, and that's valid too. So I always discourage people from comparing. If you went through it and it still affects you, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what anybody else went through. It doesn't matter if it does or doesn't affect them. The bottom line is this is your experience, your life, your narrative, and that's what's most important. It's not a comparison. It never was, it never will be. So don't compare. Okay, so that is what 
trauma can be caused by, right? Different types of traumas. Now, let's look at symptoms, right? What are we talking about when we say we see that this person obviously has a lot of trauma, right? We've all heard that. She's got a ton of trauma. She's been through a lot. Well, what we're really referring to there is symptoms. We see that this person has some type of disturbance in their functioning because of something that they've been through that remains unresolved, where they haven't really had any healing or closure or any sense of safety that's been rebuilt since they experienced this. So what are the symptoms? Well, the DSM, our handy-dandy, you know, diagnostic Bible, (laughs) the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Um, This is what psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, social workers, this is what we use to uh, diagnose, really. But you have to understand this is simply a classification system. It is basically, it was created by the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, and the purpose of it was to have one common set of nomenclature for everybody in the field who works with uh, mental disorders so that when they work in a collaborative multidisciplinary team, we all know what we're referring to. And the purpose of it originally was to be a theoretical, meaning it's not about cognitive behavioral theory or, you know, psychoanalytic theory. It was simply to classify the symptoms that we see presenting so that we all know what we're looking at and so that we can treat it appropriately and all be on the same page. So when we look at post-traumatic stress disorder, we're really looking at five primary areas of symptoms, five main things, okay? So the first one is for there to be actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence through directly experiencing the event, meaning I was in the accident or I was hurt or I was sexually assaulted, through witnessing in person the event happening to someone else, right? So for example, if there's twins and they share a bedroom and one of them witnesses the other twin being sexually abused, that is also going to be traumatic to the twin who's witnessing but is not being abused. Well, potentially, right? Remember that individuality thing. It can also be exposure through learning that the traumatic event happened to a close friend or family member. Um, You can also be exposed through experiencing a lot of details or um, seeing a lot of people going through lots of traumatic events. And this is really common with like first responders, like EMTs 
and emergency room staff and police officers. This is what we call vicarious trauma. So even though the event isn't happening to them, for some people who work in these types of roles where they're in the front lines and they're there to help those who are in dangerous situations, when they see enough suffering of others, it can also be traumatic for them. So the first cluster is that there needs to be some type of traumatic event that the person has either experienced personally or has witnessed or has had to uh, acquire a lot of detailed information about, but something happened, okay? The second cluster of symptoms, remember there are five, the second is intrusive symptoms. We call them intrusive. So what we're really referring to here is, for example, um, memories of what happened that kind of come in unexpectedly. We have no control over them. They happen over and over again. This is kind of what we talk about with like flashbacks. Um, nightmares, so dreams, and things that we see that are related to the traumatic event, and we've no control over them, and obviously they're distressing. We're also looking at dissociative reactions. So these are situations where um, it can be as simple as a flashback or a memory, but it can also be as severe and intense as um, feeling like they're back in the same situation as the traumatic event and just fully not being present anymore, right? So it's kind of like that lights are on but no one's home kind of thing where I'm there, I'm physically awake and seemingly present, but after I snap out of it, I have no memory of what happened in that period of time, those few minutes. I was not actually um, aware or recalling. It's like a blackout kind of thing. But they're there and they're awake and they will interact and they will speak and it seems totally normal, but they're not really there. It's like a glitch with the brain where it simply shuts off that memory recorder <laughs> for those few minutes because it can be really intense. Um, it's kind of a protective mechanism for people who find themselves doing that. And people can do all sorts of things when they're dissociated. Um, I see a lot of uh, clients of mine who can become really aggressive when they're in that state where they can start verbally attacking people and being really mean and angry. And then when they snap out of it and they calm down and they're told, you know, you said this, you did this, they have absolutely no recollection of it. Now, the problem with that is that even though they have no recollection of it and it's really easy for them to say, well, you know, uh, I can't really be held responsible or be expected to apologize. I have no memory of it. I, I didn't do it on purpose. But the problem is the people around them do have memory of it and it can be really hurtful for them. So that's kind of where it gets tricky is, you know, you can't really get mad at this person for having such a severe trauma response that they dissociate. But at the same time, 
you know, it's really difficult to be on the receiving end of that kind of anger when they are dissociated. So I will tell you that is not uncommon and it's something that I have to navigate quite frequently. You know, part of it is that it's the traumatized person's responsibility to do trauma work to resolve some of this, to work on, you know, feeling safe and being more present and grounded to prevent that type of dissociation. And it's also a little bit of work with the person on the receiving end of that anger to have some compassion and understanding to not always take it personally and have some patience with the traumatized person. It's kind of a fine balance. Okay, Um, so we talked about dissociation as an intrusive symptom. There's also um, psychological distress. So what we're really talking about is somebody gets really scared, somebody gets really anxious, you can see their whole affect change. Um, And this is usually when there are some type of cues or things that symbolize some aspect of the traumatic event that they've been through. And those could be internal cues, external cues. So what we mean by that, well, what I mean, but really we, (laughs) is when we talk about internal cues, we're talking about really emotions and thoughts, the stuff that's inside us. External cues are things from our environment. So for example, an internal cue can be, um, let's say we're coming near the date, an anniversary or, you know, close to the date that the trauma happened, even if it was years ago. And even though we're completely safe and there's nothing around us that is threatening, we're in a good situation, everything is copacetic, But knowing that we're coming up to the anniversary of it and that reminder, people will find themselves around that time of the year starting to get kind of irritable or depressed. And it's always around this time and it's this internal, you know, anxiety. It still comes in and it is not caused by anything currently happening to them but it can still kind of come in and intrude and uh, dysregulate them. And they can also have physiological reactions to internal or external cues. So what we mean by that is they could see something or feel something that resembles it and they have a response in their physical body. So they can get nauseous, they get lightheaded, Um, all of a sudden their stomach starts to hurt, they get headaches, they have trouble sleeping. These are what we refer to when we talk about physiological responses. So that's the second criteria, right? We talked about having exposure to some type of traumatic event and then intrusive symptoms. The third one is uh, avoidance behaviors. So This is where people avoid or try to avoid any, anything that resembles, reminds them, is similar to any people, places, things 
that are in any way, even if it's really remote and it's a stretch, but still, if it reminds them of the traumatic event, they try to avoid it at all costs, or they actually are successful in avoiding it. So avoiding memories, thoughts, feelings, people, places, activities, objects, anything that reminds them or uh, elicits similar feelings to how they felt during their traumatic events. So I'll give you some examples of this. So for example, I have betrayed partners. We've talked about betrayed partners where there's been infidelity or cheating, sex addiction, whatever it is. And let's say this betrayed partner finds out that the their partner who betrayed them used to take this one road to go to a specific place where they used to cheat, right? Let's say it's, I don't know, a massage parlor or it's a strip club or whatever. And finding out that this person was doing it was so traumatic that that is a street that they can't even drive on. Because as soon as they even see the street sign, it brings back memories of where their partner was going, right? Or for example, um, somebody who has some type of sexual trauma Sometimes any kind of physical touch that is um, unnecessary. So let's say they meet somebody who's very sweet, right? And this isn't even romantic. Like let's say it's just in line at a grocery store waiting to pay and they chat it up with somebody in line next to them. Everything is going fine and they make that person laugh and as the person's laughing, they're like, oh my gosh, you're so funny. And they touch their arm. And it's come out of nowhere. And that physical touch in itself can be a reminder, any type of physical touch, right? Affection, that kind of thing, especially early on and not knowing somebody or a new sexual partner. These are all things that can be um, reminders that can bring back feelings. And so some people try to avoid these things. They try to avoid touch at all costs. They don't want to be affectionate. They're not really huggers. <laughs> they are. They don't really want to shake hands. They will if they absolutely have to. Some people avoid going to doctors because the uh, act of being examined and touched can be really triggering. So this is what I mean is people avoid all sorts of things to not be reminded and thereby triggered. So that's the third category. The fourth category is basically changes in thoughts and moods um, that are associated with the traumatic event. And um, this is sort of your affective set of symptoms. So it can also be other stuff, but I'll give you some more details. So for example, somebody who has trouble remembering all the details of what happened, um, some of it has been blocked out. That's part of this cluster of symptoms. Um, Self-blaming, where they have negative beliefs about themselves, where um, they can also have negative beliefs about others or of the world. So, you know, the whole thing of like, 
uh, I can't trust anybody. There's no such thing as a safe person. Um, people are inherently bad or I am bad. Uh, it's my fault, right? It's, it's this, it's this kind of exaggerated negative belief about either myself or somebody else or just the world in general that comes out of this trauma that has basically altered my perception. Um, there's also, um, well, negative emotional states. So for this person to be, you know, persistently in some type of a depression or anger or anxiety or guilt or shame, and it's, it's just something they can't shake, they're constantly in that state. That's another example of this cluster. Um, then there's also people who start losing interest or really not wanting to engage in the things that they used to enjoy or do regularly. Um, the psychobabble term for this, I believe, is anhedonia. And it's just, you know, I used to love to go hiking and now I just don't really want to leave my house. I don't want to go outside. Um, you know, I used to be really into having my routine nine to five. It was great. And now I'm just always late for work and I don't want to go and I don't want to shower. I don't want to do anything. Um, there's also what you see is people tend to start isolating themselves. They sort of detach from their world. They feel kind of estranged. They feel like they're an outsider. It's like this, um, it's kind of a surreal feeling, like the world isn't what it used to be to them. Um, there's also, you know, the flip side of that, where even when good things are happening after this traumatic event, there's a celebration, there's, you know, promotion, there's something going on and everyone is happy and they're happy for them and they find themselves being unable to experience any of those positive, happy emotions too, where, you know, they, they kind of go, well, I should be happy right now. This is great. And I know that cognitively, but I don't feel happy. And I don't remember the last time I felt happy, right? The last category is a cluster of symptoms around um, arousal and reactivity. So what we're talking about here is, um, well, there's sort of that jumpiness, there's a much more sensitive startle response, um, but there's also hypervigilance here so constantly being suspicious, um, frequently worrying, needing to check things, not feeling safe. Um, there's also some self-destructive behavior in this that can happen, some irritability, outbursts, those kinds of things. There, it's, it's sort of where people start to exist on a bit of a hair trigger. Right, they're a little, they're a little jumpy. They're a little, uh, they're wired kind of tight at this point. They're not really doing well, and you also see issues with like focusing. They kind of get this foggy brain. They have trouble sleeping, um, and a lot of it is because of this lack of feeling safe. They just don't feel safe after what's happened to them, so they're sort of on guard all the time. 
So this is what we're talking about. This was a lot of different things that I just covered in terms of, you know, the avoidance and intrusiveness and, um, you know, the, the startle responses, the reactivity, um, mood and thought process alterations. There's a lot that goes on for somebody. And, you know, not everybody has every single one of these symptoms. Some people just have, you know, a few or maybe one from each of these categories. And, you know, not everybody has even one from each category. Some people will have, pardon, that was my sign falling. <laughs> I think that's a cue for me to wrap it up. But um, some people will have just a couple. And so there's different degrees to this, you know, mental disorders exist on a spectrum. Not everybody who may have some type of a diagnosis is going to look like the next person who has the same diagnosis. It can present differently. So I want to be very clear. This is why I want to explain what it is exactly that I'm talking about when I say trauma. So when I use the term trauma, more often than not, it's small t trauma, okay? Not everybody has been through some big, scary, painful, huge, dramatic event. Some people have just had uh, a really staggering lack of really positive events, and that can affect them too. And sometimes it's a series of small bad events, but there's been so many that it's really impacted that person. So when I say somebody is uh, demonstrating some type of a traumatic response or trauma response, those are the things that I'm referring to is that what I'm seeing is that they have a hard time being present. They're sort of dissociative. They're hypervigilant. Um, they have a lot of mood dysregulation, mood swings, sleep disturbances, you know, uh, physiological symptoms. You know, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I have IBS. Well, is it out of nowhere? IBS is stress-related, what's happened recently. So this is what I'm referring to, and I want to be clear. And if you have a bunch of these symptoms and they're impacting your ability to live your life and function, you may want to consider getting some help for that. And there's a ton of different types of trauma treatments. So there's pretty much anything you can imagine from some cognitive behavioral approaches to things like EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Uh, there's um, brain spotting. There's something called somatic experiencing, which is more uh, working on the mind-body connection, really working with um, somatization, which is physical symptoms of emotional states, right? So really working through movement and sensation in your body. Um, there's all different types of approaches. So I know nowadays also there's a lot of research going on um, around psychedelic-assisted 
treatments for really severe trauma. They're seeing some pretty significant positive results with that. So I want you to know that there is help for this. If this is something that you're experiencing, if you've been through some type of trauma, big or small, and you're experiencing this, there's a whole world of help out there. And, you know, may take you a little bit to really discover what is most effective for you, what fits best for you, whether it's, you know, talk therapy or somatic experiencing or EMDR, whatever it is, there's help out there and you don't have to feel like you're stuck in this. And I think the biggest thing that I try to reiterate to people is that, you know, a lot of people just go on like this thinking this is normal. This is how they're supposed to feel. And in reality, doing the work of trauma treatment and healing and resolving some of these traumas is going to help give you a better quality of life. You don't have to continue to feel this way. So for the sake of a better quality of life, I encourage people to get treatment for their traumas. So I hope this has been helpful. I know this was kind of an information dump, but I always am wary of using some type of terminology without being very clear about what it is. What the hell am I talking about? So this is uh, your little info session on trauma. What is it? (laughs) How do we define it? What are the symptoms of it? And also lots and lots of treatments for it. So I hope this has been helpful. As always, thank you for listening. I welcome your feedback. I would love to hear from you. And I look forward to giving you some more info in your next episode. Take care. Bye-bye.